Everybody, how you doing this morning? Got a little taste of spring on Saturday, Friday, and back comes the wind. Brutal this morning. I'm glad you made it in. It's warm in here, so uh, hopefully uh, you won't fall asleep if it's too warm. But uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me if you have them. Hopefully you do. To 1 Peter chapter 2. If you need a Bible to use, you should find one down in one of the chair racks around you. First Peter 2, in case you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series called Aliens. Uh, it's a study of this letter the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the early church who he addresses as aliens in the world uh, because of their faith in Christ, because of their reverence for God, for their, because of their desire to obey God, what he says is good and right and true and healthy and best for us. Peter says that you know they were going to be oftentimes misunderstood by the culture around them and viewed as people who just don't always seem to fit in. So last week we uh, looked at the opening verses of chapter 2, and let me just say if you missed that, I I really think you need to go online and and listen to the message or download it and listen whenever you can, because Peter writes about something pretty important. He writes about spiritual growth, and he emphasizes how by experiencing new birth, we all start out our our, uh, spiritual life in Christ as newborn babies, immature, unstable, self-centered, undisciplined and easily fooled. Um, But through the nourishment of God's word, Peter says, we grow and we learn. You know, we learn the difference between what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's uh, unifying and divisive, what's what's healthy and what's toxic. In other words, we mature into people who love each other sincerely and deeply from the heart. And it's that kind of love, Peter says, that sets us sets us apart. And so today uh, we're going to pick up where we left off with verse 4. But before we do that, let's pray, shall we? Our Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity we all have to be together here. And um, just uh, in the few minutes ahead, I pray that we'd be able to put all the um, all the things that are occupying our minds, starting uh, ending this, ending the weekend, maybe even thinking about how we're going to start the week. Could we put those things aside for a few minutes? And uh, and listen carefully to what you have to say. We submit ourselves and humble ourselves before you and before one another. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we noted at the beginning of this series, when Peter wrote this letter, uh, the church was experiencing severe persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero, who intentionally and falsely blamed Christians for setting the city of Rome on fire. And so he declared them to be a threat to the empire. He ordered uh, them to be rounded up, their money and possessions uh, confiscated. Most were uh, beaten and abused. Some were fed to wild dogs. Uh, Others were hung on crosses, and some were even tied to posts covered with pitch and set on fire, used as torches to light Nero's gardens. I mean, it was an intense time of pain and suffering for the church, and the Apostle Peter was aware of all that, of all the the injustice, the brutality, the uh, the agony and death that fellow Christians were facing and experiencing every single day. I mean, he realized their lives were rattled, to say the least. Uh, their confidence shaken. And it's against this historical backdrop that he writes uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, these words. He says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now, let me just be right up front about it. This section of Peter's letter is probably the most difficult uh, to understand and interpret so far. 
Uh, at least it is for me, because uh, primarily because there's just so much going on in these verses. I mean, have you ever found yourself in a conversation where uh, you're so passionate about about what you want to communicate that your thoughts start racing and you start saying things like, you know, it's time to step up to the plate and lay all your cards on the table. Or uh, if, if we want to get ahead, we have to iron out the bottlenecks. You know, you just start mixing metaphors and saying all kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? In some ways, I feel that that's kind of what happens to Peter here. He so, he so wants to encourage the church that he, he mixes metaphors and he quotes various scriptures and he uses Old Testament images and secular images and he puts it all together. And it's just, it's just really easy to get lost in the mix of it all. And so the interpretive question becomes comes, what is Peter trying to say? What is his what is his point here? What is his purpose? And it seems to me that ultimately what he's trying to do is to reassure and reinforce a sense of security among those in the church who were suffering, whose faith was being shaken to its foundation. And in an effort to do that, Peter uses ancient architecture as his primary metaphor. And so if I, I were to boil it all down to the basics, I would say this, that Peter is attempting to remind persecuted, suffering Christians, remind them who Jesus is and who they were as his people. So let's talk about the first part of that. Who is Jesus? And notice Peter describes him a number of different uh, ways, right? First, he refers to him in verse four as, as the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. I don't know if any of you ever watched the uh, travel channel, but there is a series on, uh, on the travel channel called uh, Monumental Mysteries. And it's where the host uh, goes out and explores uh, all kinds of extraordinary man-made monuments. And I've watched a couple episodes of it, and it's, it's really hard for me to uh, imagine what it would be like to build one of these impressive structures, like, uh, like the, the Lincoln Monument, a pyramid in Egypt, uh, the Colosseum in Rome. And it's hard for me to imagine because when it comes to building stuff, I am constructionally challenged. I mean, I, seriously, I am bad. My wife doesn't like me to be around power tools because it's not safe. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing with them. But... Uh, Nonetheless, I think it would be pretty cool to be part of building uh, something that really lasts, you know, that impacts the world, that influences history. Well, in a way, Peter says, imagine being part of building something greater than a monument. Imagine, imagine building a movement, not something made of inanimate stones and bricks, but something that's active and in motion with its very foundation resting on a stone that's alive. Well, that stone, Peter says, is the leader of God's redemptive movement. He's called the Son of God, Messiah, Savior. His name is Jesus. He is the living stone. It's a pretty interesting description. And although he was once dead, Peter says he's now alive. And many in the world reject him, but God the Father has chosen to exalt him. And so Peter introduces this stone metaphor in verse 4, and then he carries it through the next several verses uh, because he says not only is Jesus the living stone, but he's what? He's also the cornerstone. In verse 6, he, he quotes Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, who uh, predicted Jesus' birth 700 years before it happened. Peter writes, For in the scripture it says, and remember Isaiah was speaking for God, Isaiah said this, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Zion was another name for Jerusalem, uh, and it's where God, obviously where God set Jesus into history as the living stone, but also to be the cornerstone of divine redemption. And again, I don't know, I really don't know much about construction. I know even less about ancient architecture, but as I understand it, the cornerstone refers to the first stone laid when establishing the position and lines of a building. 
Every other stone, every other brick that's laid uh, is laid in line with the edges of the cornerstone. So if the cornerstone is right, level, strong, and secure, then there's a standard for everything else to be right, level, strong, and secure. If the cornerstone is laid improperly, or if it's unstable, if it lacks integrity, if it's weak, or even if it's missing, then the whole building's at risk and in danger of crumbling, especially when storms blow through. So the cornerstone was the most costly stone because it needed to be perfect, and it was chosen carefully, and therefore it was the most precious stone to the builder. Well, along with Isaiah, Peter says, Jesus is the perfect cornerstone, the cornerstone of God's rescue operation. He is the standard of truth and love. He's the baseline of behavior. He's, he's the foundation that defines just who God is and what he's doing in our world and in our lives. And anyone, Peter says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, it's important we recognize the idea of trust here means it means so much more than just intellectual acknowledgement. It means more than just liking Jesus and his teachings. Trusting here means shifting one's center of gravity onto him, onto the cornerstone. Think of it this way. I don't know if any of you have ever been part of a team building event, exercise, where you have to do a trust fall. Have you ever done that? So if you haven't, it's you climb up on a, on a chair or a ladder or something and people are around behind you and they're standing there with their arms out and you're on the chair, you close your eyes and then you begin to lean backwards and, uh, and slowly you begin to shift your center of gravity off of your foundation, off of your feet until you at last fall into the arms of somebody else whose strength and foundation then becomes yours. That's the image that Peter gives us here. Uh, to trust means to shift our center of gravity, to shift our hope, our sense of meaning, our sense of purpose, to, to shift our sense of security off the things of the world that we often put our, our hope in, our careers, our health, our money, fame, relationships, possessions. It means to shift our center of gravity off of those things and onto Jesus, making him the firm foundation and cornerstone of our lives. Now understand, despite what a lot of people think, biblical Christianity is not, it's not about affirming a set of theological doctrines. Uh, it's not about religious rituals that we need to follow ad nauseum until we're so bored or we get beat down so much by guilt that we can't take it anymore. Christianity is not that. Christianity is about having a right and personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus who graciously, graciously gives us life and purpose and a spiritual destiny. And not only did Jesus define the world's calendar and change the course of history, he changes us. And as his followers, as those who believe and trust in him, he is everything. He is the foundation of our lives and our understanding of life. But not, not everyone believes that. Many people reject Jesus as the Son of God who came to rescue a broken world. And while a few people might say he was misguided, most people, majority of people say that he was a great teacher and a moral leader. Although that doesn't make a lot of sense really, not to me, because brilliant teachers and moral leaders don't make the kind of claims that Jesus made. I mean, he claimed to be deity in the flesh. He claimed to be Messiah, Savior, the one and only way to God. And just for the record, when Jesus said, Jesus said, didn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. He said what? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when he added, no one comes to the Father except through me, he eliminated all other possibilities. Deity in the flesh come to die as the perfect sacrifice for sin and human rebellion. By his own words and claims, Jesus said all other options for humanity to find forgiveness and reconciliation with their creator, they're all invalid. So either Jesus was a fraud, con man, or a complete lunatic and crazy person, or he was and is who he claimed to be, savior of the world. But Peter says for those who, those who trust in him, those who believe in him, they're never going be, never be, never to be put to shame. 
For those who believe, he is precious, absolutely precious. But for those who don't, if for whatever reason reject him, Peter says, Jesus then becomes the capstone. Verse 7, he writes, to those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, this is a, this is a quote from Psalm 118. And to be honest about it, I don't think it's a particularly good translation. And you might have a, you might have a, uh, a translation, Bible translation that says something else. But the, the actual Greek reads, uh, the Greek here reads, the stone rejected has become the head of the corner. The head of the corner, or the headstone, or the capstone. What's that? It's the last stone that finishes the building. And it seems to me that Peter here is alluding to a day when God will bring human history to a point of culmination. And when it happens, when, when we all stand before him, Jesus will have the final word. He will have the final say. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He, Paul said, he'll be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's my, here's my personal Reiki summary of that. In that final, awesome, culminating moment of redemptive history, Jesus will cap it off. He will be the final stone which seals the fate and destiny of those who have trusted and believed in him and those who have not. In fact, Peter carries this idea into verse 8. He says he's a stumbling stone to those who don't believe. He's a stumbling stone. He's a rock that makes them fall. In other words, not only do some people choose not to believe in Jesus, some people just frankly don't like him very much. They, they're offended at his claims. And so instead of being a stepping stone to heaven, Jesus becomes a stumbling stone that turns... Uh, them away from eternal life. And these are people who refuse to embrace the good news of God's grace because they, in some ways, they see no need for a savior. You know, they've kind of set themselves on a path of independent choice and will follow that path no matter the consequences. It's the arrogant person who says, look, I don't, I don't need this savior thing, man. I've looked at my own life. I've, de- I've determined myself to be pretty, a pretty good person, worthy of God. Now I'm not as good as some, definitely better than others though. So based on my own personal evaluation, I declare myself good enough to deserve heaven. I pronounce myself justified. And that pronouncement's okay if you're God. <laughs> if not, it's meaningless. I mean, it's hard to think about, sometimes hard to talk about, but sadly, some people, some people have made up their minds about Jesus. And the more they, more they hear about him, the more resistant they become. There's an old saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And that's true. In a similar way, the same gospel of Jesus that turns some hearts to repentance and faith turns others to disbelief and disobedience. Now, put all this together, put all these stone comparisons together, and what do you get? What you get is a compelling picture of Jesus. He is perfect. He is true. Uh, he is strong. He is eternally secure. He is the living stone, the precious and costly cornerstone, the capstone, the stumbling stone. He is Lord. He is leader. And who are we? We are those who trust and believe in him and follow him in the pursuit of a great cause. You say, why do you say that? Well, I say it because according to Peter, every single Christian is part of God's mission, God's purpose in the world. You know, just as Just as Jesus is the living stone, so we are called what? Living stones, mortared together with him. Verse 5, Peter says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable, uh, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, In Christ, every one of us is like a stone, not in a monument to God, but in the movement of God. We are the ones God, we are the ones God is using to accomplish his work and will uh, in the world. Uh, the ancient Greek city-state of Sparta was um, famous 
for its military strength. There's a story about a Spartan king who once boasted to a foreign monarch that his city was invincible because of the walls of the city. They couldn't be conquered. But when that foreign dignitary came for a visit, he saw Sparta and noticed there were no walls. And so he asked the king, he said, hey, uh, your, you know, your majesty, where, where are the walls that you boasted about? And the king of Sparta pointed to his soldiers and he said, there, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man is a brick. And so it is with the kingdom of God. The greatness and strength of the movement of God is the church and the church's people. Not bricks and mortar, but flesh and blood. We are the living stones of God. And let, let me emphasize we here because Peter uses the term in the plural, stones. In other words, as Christians, we exist in unity. There's no such thing as a solitary Christian or someone with a unique relationship to God apart from everybody else. The corporate nature of the church is stressed again and again and again in the images of Scripture. We're called God's people, not God's person. We're His family, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. We're branches. We're sheep. We're a flock. We're all critical members and parts of a body, the body of Christ, the church. Now understand, Scripture knows nothing of contemporary American individualism. Nothing. We are a corporate entity living and loving and serving together. We help and receive help. We give and receive. We care for those under us. We submit to those over us. We reach out to bring those on the outside in. We come together to study, pray, to worship, to encourage, to strengthen one another so that then we go back out and make a difference in the world. Some refer to this event here as the holy huddle. Have you ever heard that? The holy huddle. That doesn't make any sense to me. Because, look, you don't go to a Bears game to watch the huddle. You go to the game to see the team break out of the huddle and play the game together to win. The cause of Christ is that kind of a deal. We come together just for strength and, and encouragement and, and, and learning, but then we, we break out. And we play together. We go to win. It's a team effort. Every now and then someone will say to me, well, you know, the church. I don't really need the whole church thing. You know, I'm private in my faith. And those who say that are people who are not in community. They're not, they don't attend worship services. They don't, they don't really participate in the, in the work of the church. They don't pray with others. They don't serve. They don't give. They're kind of self-proclaimed independent Christians. But I'm just going to tell you right up front, that's nonsense. It's nonsense. There's no such thing in Scripture as a rogue believer. To say you're an independent Christian is like saying you're an independent liver. That doesn't work. Just as organs in the body need one another to survive and function, just as stones need one another to construct a building, so we believers need one another. Speaking of buildings, notice verse 5. Peter says, we're living stones that make up what? A spiritual house. And again, it's the idea of oneness. Of oneness. Listen, in the midst of a messed up world, God is, God is fighting injustice. He is confronting sin. He's spreading love. He's forgiving. He's rescuing. He's, he's extending grace through the work of His Son and by the power of His Spirit. And He is building His church, an amazing masterpiece, you and me, together. Don't be a missing stone. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, a Christian, realize that you are called to be part of something truly great, something lasting, world-changing. Do your part. You say, well, what, what's my part? What am I supposed to do? Peter says, you're to be what? A holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, priests represented the people um, to God, right? In, in the, the religious rituals of ancient Judaism, every man and woman needed to go through a priest to connect with God. Priests were special people with special rights and responsibilities and privileges. They alone had access, direct access to God. And only certain men could be priests. And only those belonging to a certain Hebrew tribe could be priests. Uh, only the direct descendants of 
Aaron could be priests. Only those who were never divorced could be priests. Only those without disease or disabilities could be priests. Peter says, hey, listen to me. He says, Jesus changed all that. How would you like to be a priest? How would you like to have a close, intimate relationship with God, direct access to him whenever, wherever, without going through anybody else? Would you like to be a priest even though you're not Jewish, even though you're a woman, even though you you have been divorced, even though you have a disease or a disability, even though you haven't received formal theological training? Peter says, in Christ, every single man and woman is a priest endowed with the special rights and privileges that go along with it. However, being a priest carries responsibilities. You know what priests do? Peter says, they offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Especially for us in the church, what does that mean? Well, scripture tells us what it means, at least five things. First, as priests, it means we offer a self-sacrifice to God. We offer ourselves to God. The Apostle Paul put it this way when he wrote the church. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Ray K. Translation. We are to give ourselves to God and to the cause of God in the world. To willingly sacrifice our own desires, our own energy and time and, and resources for the good of the one who sacrificed himself for us. Being priests means we worship and praise God together. You know, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews declares, he says, uh, through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And so we, we speak the truth of the gospel. We, we sing about it. We pray about it. We talk about it. You know, we, we, we praise God for it and what he's done in our lives. And we praise him. But that's the easy part in some respects. That's the easy part because being priests also means that we sacrifice and financial giving to the cause. You know, when Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote Christians living in the city of Philippi, he wrote to thank them for their their generous support of, of the work he was doing with Gentiles. They sent Paul financial gifts. And he says to them in a letter, he says, you guys are incredibly generous with your gifts. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, giving toward the mission. The movement of God in the world. As priests, we offer our service. You know, when when the offer of Hebrews writes, offer God a sacrifice of praise. In the very next verse, he says, and oh yeah, and don't forget to do good <laughs> and share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. You know, singing is great, but don't forget to serve. And finally, as priests, we are to offer, get this, souls to God. That's kind of weird. We Rarely do we think of people as being offerings, but, but in a sense, that's what they are. Now, again, when writing the early church, the Apostle Paul says, look, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, he said he also gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel, the good news, so the, gen- so the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. Do you get what he's saying? Do you understand the implications of that? He is saying that every person we point to Jesus, every person we lead to faith in Christ, every life that's impacted by our teaching of the gospel, every, every life that's changed because of our generosity, because we're serving in the community, everything that we do, every soul that is rescued by the grace of God through Jesus is an offering pleasing to God. Every person. You know, according to Paul, according to Peter, we are living stones being built into a spiritual house to be holy priests. And being priests isn't just about who we are. It's about... It's about what we do. As I said at the, the beginning this morning, these four verses here, I got to tell you, man, are they're challenging to interpret just because there's so much included. There's so much going on. But for me, the most critical thing Peter writes is about Jesus being the cornerstone. Why? Because the people he was writing to were suffering. 
They were suffering poverty. They were suffering loss of jobs. They were suffering loss of family members, grief, uh, pain. I mean, in the midst of all of the pain and, and, and the struggle, you know, their sense of security was being rattled. And so Peter reminds them that their hope and their eternal destiny was safe no matter what because they placed their trust and faith on a firm foundation, a perfect cornerstone, who is Jesus. In fact, all of reading all this brought to my mind something Jesus said one day to a whole group of people he was speaking to. He said this to them. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who puts, who builds, who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Listen to me, suffering, suffering in some form or another is part of the human experience. You know it and I know it. Pain is a part of life, life in a broken world. And that wasn't just true for early Christians. I mean, it's true for us as well. And so when suffering comes, not if it comes, but when it comes into our experience, into your experience, when the storm, storms of life howl around you and the waves crash in and the torrent rages, it may rattle you. It may rattle, may, may rattle us. But here's the thing. It's wrong for us to say, oh man, if I, could just, if I could just get out of the storm. No. Jesus said the storm isn't the problem. The storm isn't the problem. The problem is where we build is when we build our lives on things that are unstable and easily destroyed. That's the problem. And so the question for us becomes, what is the foundation upon which we are placing our hope in building our lives? What is it? Peter says, Jesus is the perfect cornerstone, an eternally firm foundation no matter what. And whoever trusts in him, he says, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And I hope you've put your trust in it. Let's pray. Our Father, I, I, I think we would all, um, if we're honest, admit that we have a tendency to put our hope and our sense of security for today and the future on things that are unstable and easily destroyed. Because when the storms of life come, and they come to all of us, when those storms come and the winds blow and the torrent rages, the things of the world that we put our hope in are just washed away. They've been built on a, on a faulty foundation. And it's only when we put our trust in you, when we shift our gra- sense of gravity, our center of gravity, off of, our, off of ourselves, off of the things of the world, and shift it onto you, that we are able to withstand the storm. Because the storm really isn't the problem. The problem is where we've placed our hope and faith and trust. And so I pray this morning that each of us would have the courage to, uh, to think carefully and evaluate where we're placing our hope in this thing called life and in our future. Is it on the stuff of the world or is it on Jesus, the cornerstone? May it be him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.